Welcome to the College Football Playoff Show, where college football playoff contenders earn the right to be discussed and where the playoff never ends. Now, here are your hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. Thanks, everyone, joining us on the College Football Playoff Show. You might be new. You might have heard our commercial. You might be uh, finding us on Twitter, at CFB Playoff Show. I always get confused with the B and the P because the playoff and the football and all that. CFB Playoff Show, follow us on Twitter. You can maybe have found us, you know, searching for college football on your podcast app. Maybe you know Shahan. Maybe you know me, Doug Maurice. It's it. We're, we're happy to have you however you got here. If you're a repeat customer, thanks for sticking with us. This week, as we do every week, we discuss a team should they join our playoff mix. And then we rank our playoff contenders by a particular category. Last week, for instance, it was Notre Dame. Should they be in? And it was head coaches who was the best head coach this week. It's Oregon. And then we're going to rank them by best individual defensive player. But first, we got to figure out the Ducks. James Crepia, great Oregon beat writer, will join us in a moment to dig in a little bit. Shahan, you're up, though. We like to do the one-minute opening. Why should Oregon join our playoff discussion? The question with Oregon is not if, it's when. The way that they've recruited over the past couple of years, number six, number 11, number seven, number 13, is borderline playoff level and certainly head and shoulders above the rest of the Pac-12. Last year, they were Pac-12 champions. Now, granted, it did take uh, some COVID situation for that to happen, but they did win the Pac-12. And now heading into this upcoming year, they have some of the best players in college football, uh, specifically on the defensive line, Kayvon Thibodeau. If it's not a quarterback drafted number one in the 2022 NFL draft, it's going to be Kayvon Thibodeau. Uh, they have some other guys on that defense, including Noah Sewell. They've got Michael Wright. They just have a lot of pieces on that defense. And offensively, they have some questions at the quarterback position. But at running back, they bring back a fully healthy CJ Verdell. They bring back a fully healthy Travis Dye. They have plenty of skill position options. They bring back, I believe, four starters on the offensive line. This is a team that's been building towards this point for the last couple of years. Now, the question is, you have to go to Ohio State. You have to obviously, you know, probably go 11 and one at least to have a chance to be playing in the college football playoff. But this is not a question of if this is a question of what I think it's a question of conference, because I don't know, frankly, why any Pac-12 team should be in our playoff discussion until we get far enough into the season where they absolutely warrant it. The Pac-12 has basically been an afterthought. In the playoff, after the first couple of years, we know Oregon made it as the number two seed in the first year of the playoff, lost to Ohio State in the national championship game. We know Washington made it as the four seed in 2016. But the last three years, last four years in the playoff, highest ranked Pac-12 team in 2017, USC eight, in 2018, Washington nine, in 2019, Oregon six, and in 2020, last year, the Pac-12 played such a limited schedule, they probably weren't going to get anybody in no matter what, USC 17. That's not really reflective. If you if the Oregon case, listen, two years ago, they were right there. They they lost the the coin flip game to Oregon to open the season, and that cost them their wiggle room. And then they lose the the regular season game that you don't see coming, and now all of a sudden they're out. They finished six when they were a playoff level team in 2019. But it's just hard, Shahan. Like I just that's a roadblock, man. And especially in a world where if you think Georgia and Texas A&M and Alabama are all pretty good in the SEC, and if you think, you know, that Oklahoma is really going to lock down a spot for the Big 12, and then Clemson's Clemson, Ohio State's Ohio State, I think Oregon or anybody in the Pac-12 might have to go undefeated to get in. And is Oregon going to go undefeated? Are they going to beat Ohio State in Columbus? Are they going to handle Washington and everybody else in their division? I I just think it's hard, Shahan, because the Pac-12, you talk a lot about sort of that innate respect that a team has. There is not a lot of respect for the Pac-12 right now. So as good as Oregon is, they are fighting an uphill battle. And, and I'm not sure they can get up the hill. And, and I'm not sure they should be in our discussion until they're at least partway up the hill. And that might include, if not beating Ohio State in week two, like going toe-to-toe with them for four quarters to prove they're really that kind of team. Those are the arguments. That's the pro and con of the Ducks. We like to delve into that so you guys have a sense of the overall presentation. Shahan, I do think, and we're going to get to James Kripke here in a minute, I do think the talent level is is where you start, though, right? That they're they're part of the issue with, with anybody, like any conference that's not getting the respect is, well, is your talent level good enough? 
With what Oregon has done, especially this 2019 recruiting class that's popping, Kayvon Thibodeau, Mikel Wright, as, as you said, they're two five-star guys from California who picked Oregon and are like their two best players in year three. It's like this is exactly how it's supposed to work. You look at that talent level and that says, okay, well, they don't have as many guys like that as Alabama or Ohio State, but they have some guys like that and those guys are going to be huge in their season. And the other thing that I think you mentioned about Oregon, too, is that they have done a tremendous job. Now, it's because they don't get as many, like you mentioned, as Alabama, Ohio State, but they've done a great job of leveraging those guys. They haven't missed, really, on those guys, right? Kayvon Thibodeau came in as one of the top prospects in college football, and now he's one of the best defensive linemen in college football. And I think that's one thing that you've seen consistently is that they've tended to get the most out of their players. I think that they've developed at a high level. And, uh, and you mentioned, I mean... On defense, the stats weren't necessarily there last year, but you look at what they did in terms of production, in terms of talent, in terms of uh, development curve. This could be one of the best secondaries in college football. It's going to be a lot of fun to see Oregon go up against Ohio State in that week two game and see those defensive backs versus those receivers. And, you know, funnily enough, with an Oregon team, I mean, the question for me is a little bit more offensively. It is whether Mm -hmm. they're going to be able to be explosive. It is whether Anthony Brown is going to be able to. To, to kind of throw that deep ball, to be that dynamic player. Uh, and at the same time, if you were saying the question about Oregon is whether they can have explosive plays, I mean, it's kind of what they're known for, isn't it? It's hard because the one thing is like, oh, you know, two years ago, they were like right there. It's like two years ago, they had Justin Herbert. It's like, yeah. oh, at a time when I didn't have a handle on exactly what Justin Herbert was, and now Justin Herbert's setting the NFL on fire. Like that... That is a that is a high bar, and it doesn't mean that Anthony Brown has to be Justin Herbert for Oregon to play to be a playoff contender. But it also might make I don't know if that means 2019 is an outlier for them, but at the very least, this is maybe an in between because they got a freshman quarterback who's coming, like a top 50 national recruit who's a freshman right now and has looked good. I think I don't know that they're going to go to him, but this might be an in between patch it together year at quarterback. And as you said, you said at the start. It might be a matter of when, not if. The quarterback might mean the when is not yet. The when might be next year. So let's delve into that right now with James Crepia of Oregon Live, great Oregon beat writer. We asked him a few questions. James, is the quarterback play going to be good enough for Oregon to win the Pac-12, to hang with a team like Ohio State. I think sometimes in the playoff era, we can think if you don't have a great, great quarterback, are you going to be good enough? What do you expect from the quarterback position with the Ducks this year? Well, it's certainly one of the big questions for them on offense. There is. Um, And that's not a knock. That's not necessarily a criticism on Anthony Brown Jr., who is the presumptive favorite to win the job. I mean, it would be stunning at this point if he didn't win the starting job. Uh, And he played at Boston College. He transferred. Uh, to Oregon from there was the backup last season came in late last year. And it became clear that he was going to be the favorite to be the starter at that point. Basically during the Fiesta bowl, it became clear again, he came off the bench, but he played more than Tyler Shuck did as the starter. It became clear to Shuck who then, you know, after the game says he's going to, you know, play and uh, compete for the job in the spring and then elected to transfer. And I'm not knocking him for doing that. I get it. Uh, I get both of their perspectives and, and why there was a change. Ultimately, to your point, to your question, is there still a degree of uncertainty, though? Yes, because he did play at Boston College. He did blow out each of his knees and ACLs while he was there. Any player who has that, regardless of position, you're going to have a degree of question. And when he was at Boston College, Boston College wasn't very good. And the ACC, as we know, outside of Clemson is not very good. So when you have a change of quarterback, a quarterback who does have an injury history, uh, and when he did play, played well in terms of statistically in some areas, but also didn't play on that great a team. You know, this is not bringing in a, uh, you know, you're not transferring an All-American. This isn't Jalen Hurts arriving at Oklahoma. It's not. Uh, Now, can Anthony Brown Jr. be really good and effective for them? Yes. Do they still have weapons around him that are going to be pretty good? Absolutely. Uh, But I think the key to getting this offense going this year, at least early on, is going to be getting the running game back on track. Oregon's running game took uh, really regressed uh, last year. I think it was the worst in, I think they believe it was either 05 or 06. It was basically worse in 15 years. And there was reasons for that. Uh, when their star running back hurt his thumb in like the second game of the season, it wasn't um, 
It was never himself the rest of the way. That's a bigger key to me than whether or not quarterback play is going to single-handedly carry the Ducks. That said, I agree with you. You'd need great quarterback play to win a national championship. If they're going to be in the conversation, uh, Brown certainly has to be really, really good. James, obviously on the defensive side of the ball, uh, they make a defensive coordinator change after Andy Avalos goes to Boise State. What have you seen so far from Tim DeRuder, and, and is there optimism that he's going to kind of be able to help the defense take that next step? Yeah, so what we've seen so far is just a, a little bit more by way of multiplicity. Uh, you really get into the weeds in terms of what's the difference between an Avalos's defense and DeRuder's defense. Uh, to the untrained eye, it's going to look pretty similar. It's still going to be operating out of a base 3-4 looking scheme. So overall, it looks awfully similar. And the secondary in particular, it looks really similar. There's still five guys back there for the most part. Uh, where there's changes, where there's more consistent changes, I would say, because Avalos would still run a few things, is that they're just going to do a little bit. The sport has gone more and more, and you guys have probably seen this, particularly in the Midwest, at different points. Ohio State does this. Uh, you see a lot of two-down defensive lines. Oregon ran that a little bit, uh, and it will, and it'll probably run more of that uh, under DeRuiter. What is different is that the Pac-12 North is the one division that kind of is operating in counter to the sport. So the sport's getting more spread. The sport, I mean, Alabama is last year, I think they were in the 50s or 60s in rushing offense, but we're you know, third in passing uh, and most in yards per attempt. That shows you the shift of the sport. So the sport's going one way in passing and being more spread and, and lighten up the scoreboard. The Pac-12 North is still loaded with teams who run two and three tight end sets like Stanford, like Cal, like Oregon State, like Washington. The two teams you don't are Oregon and Wazoo. Well, if you're playing three teams a year, four teams a year that are going to be playing a different style, <laughs> you still have to prepare for three and four down defensive lines. That doesn't mean they're not going to have pass rush, especially when you have a player like Kayvon Thibodeau, especially when they have inside linebackers like Noah Sewell and, J- and Justin Flo. That's a lot of five-star talent to work with. If you're Tim DeRuiter, there will be some changes. But like I say, this is going to be, uh, in terms of the differences from Avalos to DeRuiter, I think you're going to see a little bit more by way of multiplicity. But Avalos still did run a pretty multiple defense. James, a couple of suspensions in the secondary. How much is that mm-hmm. impacting the defense? How long do you expect them to last? Is, is this a big deal or will it work itself out by the time the season starts? It's a big deal in that they were both projected starters. Uh, Hill was a returning, Jamal Hill was a returning starter at nickel. Uh, he had closed the season really, really strong. Had a, a terrific year last year. Had two interceptions in the Pac-12 championship game. Even Kayvon Thibodeau said he should have been the game MVP of the game uh, after the second pick in particular. Hill was big, uh, and him being out any period of time will be significant. And DJ James had also closed the season strong, was in a backup role last year behind Diamond Lenore, who's now with the San Francisco 49ers. James was in line to take over. They both spent spring with the ones. Uh, all right, they're suspended indefinitely right now. Does Oregon still have depth in the secondary? Yeah. Uh, we just saw this first spring scrimmage. They were down not just those two who were definitely suspended. They were down six guys in the secondary collectively. That's a full unit. And overall, the defense still did better than the offense in the secondary. Uh, the guys who were competing now potentially for that outside corner job are a former four-star, uh, borderline five-star recruit in Dante Manning, who missed last year due to a hamstring strain. So on one hand, they have the depth to replace some of it. Yes, and he's competing with a third one of the third-year freshmen. As we all know, we're learning third-year freshmen is a thing now in college football. Uh, with Triquest Bridges, who's 6'3", 190. So their competition at outside corner, which was going to have some competition before, it was just going to be between the presumptive starter, who's maybe their number two corner, and their second-year freshman coming off an injury, who's number three. Now it's with their number three guy and their number four guy. Uh, that's all. So it, and, now at the, and at the nickel spot... Uh, another guy out of the Big Ten who had transferred out here, Bennett Williams, formerly of Illinois. He had played at the dime spot and was in the nickel position before last year. So will it hurt them? Yes. Do they have the depth to replace it? Yes. Do I know how long they'll be out? I do not. But as we are here in the second week of fall camp, they still have not returned to practice that we've seen. Sooner or later, their acclimation clock gets too far behind. If they miss not just the first scrimmage, if they miss also the second scrimmage of fall camp, you have to think that that's going to mean that there's an impact on playing time into the season. So that's at least the Fresno State game, potentially. Anything beyond that, I really don't know. I, I'm not even guaranteeing they're missing the Fresno State game. But sooner or later, they miss enough practice time to where clearly you think that playing time could be impacted. 
All right, James Crepia, breaking it down. We needed some of those intimate details about the fighting Oregon Ducks. James, before we let you go, yes. last thing real quick. Absolutely. Do you think they're the best team in the Pac-12? Uh, agreed. Agreed. And they they are. I think they're the most talented team. I think they're the best coach team. I th- Yes. Yeah, I think they're the best team. Now, that said, I think USC is also really talented. And I think they're also pretty well coached uh, in a couple of spots. But I also think they're terribly undisciplined. <laughs> uh, and then statistics back that up. But no, I think Oregon's the best team in the league. And Regardless of what happens in that week two game with Ohio State, you're right, Doug. The bottom line is if you're going to win your league from a power five league, even if you have a loss in non-conference play, even if you have a loss in conference play, that is how you have to be in the conversation. You're not going to be in the conversation without it. So if you're if you're going to win a power five league, you'll be in the conversation to some degree. If you win a game like a game at Ohio State, now you're really in the conversation. Right. James Crepia of Oregon Live, thank you for your time. Talking about the Ducks, my friend. Yeah, thanks so much, man. Absolutely. Good seeing you guys. All right, man. We'll talk soon, James. Thanks to James for his time on that. We will be back to talk more about the Oregon Ducks right after this on the College Football Playoff Show. Doug and Shahan. Shahan, one of the things we always do, we break down these teams in different categories. One is, are they a national title contender? Again, that's not the threshold, but it informs the discussion a little bit. I actually think they might be. That... There is a path to it, right? Because they've got some five-star dudes and they have the big-time game. So it's like, I don't know, could they be? Well, if they beat Ohio State, they are. And if they beat Ohio State, it says, okay, their quarterback's good enough. Anthony Brown's good enough. I think they have good skill guys. Are they great skill guys? I don't know, but they're good enough. And then maybe you unleash this defense with a bunch of five-star guys flying around. I don't think it's impossible. Like, I think we have some, like Notre Dame, I don't think, I don't think Notre Dame's ceiling is, is a national title, right? Even though we put them in the playoff discussion. If you're telling me that Brown is going to manage it and the rest of the talent's going to carry them, and then I think a lot of team, a, a lot of people believe in the coordinators for this team. You you brought up Tim DeRuiter. I mean, Joe Moorhead on the offensive side of the ball is a guy that gained a lot of respect coordinating the offense at Penn State when I think Penn State maybe overachieved its talent level slightly as an offense, like with what they did when they finished number five in the playoff rankings and won the Big Ten in 2016 with a Joe Moorhead offense, making Trace McSorley look awesome. I could sort of see it, Sean. You mentioned if you can have a quarterback manage the game, and I feel like if you're saying manage the game in the year 2021 in college football, that's a warning sign to me. That's a warning sign that you maybe need to win in a way that teams don't really win national titles this way. I I mean, you look at last year, right? The national title game was one of the best quarterbacks in the country in Mac Jones versus one of the best quarterbacks in the country in Justin Fields, uh, both of which had some of the best receiving games in the country. And Oregon has the talent at receiver. I don't know that we've seen the production, but it's concerning to me, the idea that I don't want to say that you're going back to an Alabama grinded out style, but there are aspects of that with how this team wants to play because they are so good and dynamic defensively uh, and, and not super explosive offensively. And again, CJ Verdell coming back, he is an explosive runner. And so that's one piece where you're like, okay, maybe the explosive running game can come back and still be dynamic and still have breakaway plays. But I, I don't know. That's concerning to me in terms of being a national title contender that you don't feel like your quarterback is going to be somebody who's going to be able to win you games, to keep you in games. And so while I think that, like you said, this does not uh, this does not necessarily make a decision on whether they belong in the discussion, I don't personally think that they're a national title contender. So when we say roadblock, we always talk about what's the roadblock for any team that we're discussing. Is not to make this all about Anthony Brown, but is the quarterback play the biggest roadblock or is there something else that jumps out to you? So I think that it's that, but I think that it's also that mixed with the fact that I'm just assuming that they're going to lose on the road at Ohio State uh, because most teams lose on the road at Ohio State. It's not really a value judgment on them. I'd probably I'd probably I mean, out of our playoff contenders, I don't know if I'd take more than I, mean, I don't know if I'd take any of them uh, straight up to beat Ohio State and Columbus. It's just a really hard thing to do. But um, so I think that it's that mixed with the fact that they have to be perfect other than that. They can't lose a single game, I think, to be truly in the playoff discussion. They have to go 12-1, and one, and their one loss has to be to Ohio State, and it probably has to be close. And even then, I mean, it's not ideal, right? right? Like, if they get blown out by Ohio State and go 12-1, and one, I still think that they have a chance to get left out. So it's it's both the combination of 
the quarterback play not being high end mixed with the idea that they can't make any mistakes. And so another thing that I'll mention, too, is if by the end of the year, either Anthony Brown looks like a different player, which is certainly in the cards. I mean, his data has generally been of him as the quarterback at Boston College. Now, at Boston College, he completed 54 percent of his passes, which I don't love. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's a much higher level of talent here when it comes to Oregon. Uh, and the other thing, too, you mentioned you have a kid in Ty Thompson coming off the bench who was the number 40 court, uh, number 40 player in America coming out of high school, right? A borderline five star type player. So there are pieces to where maybe if somebody else is able to wrangle away that starting job by the end of the year, that could raise their ceiling. But I, I think that, yeah, it's the combination of high end quarterback play mixed with the need to be perfect. You don't want to know how much time I spent in the preseason last year theorizing about Bryce Young winning the quarterback job for Mac Jones at Alabama at some point in the middle of the year. Not to say that Anthony Brown is Mac Jones, but it's hard sometimes to get a handle on these young quarterbacks mm-hmm. and when big time teams are just kind of going to pull the trigger on him and say, OK, we're going to go to this guy. Right. Clemson goes to Trevor Lawrence, whatever, fifth week of his freshman year in 2018. But again, that is not the normal circumstance. They go to Washington, I think the first weekend in November. That's looks like their toughest Pac-12 game. James said clearly, Oregon, in his opinion, is the best team in the Pac-12. But I do think that's the that's the danger, right, Shahan? That it's like, oh great, you won the Pac-12. Who cares? Like, what does that right. mean? That that is not that right. valuable to the playoff committee. You winning the Pac-12. All right, what does that mean? You're the ninth best team in college football. And then if you don't beat Ohio State, I will say. Ryan Day has all but named C.J. Stroud, the starting quarterback at Ohio State, a second-year guy. In 2014, when Ohio State, because of an injury to Braxton Miller, was forced to play J.T. Barrett, and that was much later in the preseason that happened. J.T. didn't have as much time to get ready. They had a team come into Columbus in Week 2 and beat them in Virginia Tech by throwing some different defensive looks at them, keeping a young quarterback off balance. They weren't ready for that. Now, Ohio State goes on and wins the national championship that year. But the idea that a great defense, and I, I think this is... I don't, there are some potentially great players on this defense. Is it a a totally great defense? I'm not sure, but it might be. It's not impossible to me. I don't think I'm going to pick Oregon to beat Ohio State in week two, but with a more veteran quarterback than Ohio State has, and with as many, I mean, when you go through, Shahan, and you look at the recruiting that is popping, especially on this defensive side of the ball, and again, they, they've got to have it pop on the offensive side too. But Mikel Wright and Kayvon Thibodeau in 2019 class, these third-year guys now, they're both five-star recruits. 2020, Justin Flo, Noah Sewell, they're inside linebackers. Could be an awesome group of second-year guys. They're two five-stars. And then Dante Manning, who, as, as James said, looks like he's going to be starting opposite Mikel Wright at cornerback. He's the number 31 player in the class of 2020. Like, this is like five five stars who might be in your starting 11 on the defensive side of the ball. That's not nothing, right? Like this is, they have a chance to have a great pass rush, some really skilled linebackers, and then a sec, and then some matchup corners that you really believe in that if you're putting athlete for athlete, Hey, can you cover Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave in week two? I don't know that anybody can, but Mikel Wright and Dante Manning athlete for athlete might have as good a chance as anybody that Ohio State is going to see on their schedule. So I, I I can see it, right? You can see it. It's just a matter of how far off in the distance is it. But but I think maybe you can see it, Shahan. So as we think about Oregon then, and before we give our, our votes on whether we think they should be in our playoff discussion, are you high level of confidence, medium level of confidence, or low level with what your opinion about the Ducks is? I think I'm going to go medium. Uh Again, a lot of arguments I mentioned off the top. It's not an if, but a when. So the question just kind of becomes, have they hit the when as yet? Yeah, I, I probably, I mean, the medium's always a cop out, right? It's like everything, psychologists. It's like if you give people an odd number of things, everybody picks the one in the middle. I think I'm medium too, because I, I, we talked about, because so Oregon was not part of our overall defensive team podcast because they weren't in the discussion yet. So I don't think, I don't think they're Bama, Georgia, Clemson level, but I think they're next, right? Like, I think they're right below that. And if you think Kayvon Thibodeau might be, maybe, is at least in the discussion as the best defensive player in college football, 
how how much can he change? Can he win a game? Can he win you the Ohio State game against a young quarterback? Like I I don't know. So I'm I'm medium. I'm medium also. And I will tell you, we'll start off as we do this vote now, and we do it every week. Shahan gets a vote. The Texters get a vote. I get a vote. The Texters have been a little tough at times, right? The Texters have have been a little unforgiving. And if we listened to Texters, we would just be talking about Oklahoma, Ohio State, Alabama, and Clemson every week. And so we're not doing it for the content, but we have to have a little bit of an open mind for the discussion. Again, we never say, is this team going to make the playoff? It's that, should we discuss them Shahan, the Texters say no. Mm. And they're pretty definitive. They barely let Notre Dame in last week. They are fairly definitive that Oregon should be. Oh, wait, they switched it. I thought that early on, early on, this was running one way. And now it has flipped from the early vote. They actually put Oregon in. What? I thought they were out. They have put Oregon in. The early returns were very anti-Oregon. And so when I looked at these responses, I thought I didn't I didn't bait and switch you because of great podcasting listeners. I just did it because I'm stupid. And I read it's a it's two red bars, Sean. That's all this poll is. It's like second grade graphing. Oregon, the yes has got this many votes. The no's got this many, which is more. Doug would have gotten that wrong. I failed the graphing test in second grade. Sixty five percent says in thirty five percent says out. Wow. So. They are a little more forgiving. Again, sometimes the, 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 the early votes come in hot. People are like, no, I'm going to vote right away. No. But then they get a little more open-minded as they keep voting. So they have Oregon in. Do you have Oregon in? I do not. I'm voting them out. So you mentioned they might have the fourth best out of, if let's just say for nine, right? If it's nine teams, they might have the fourth best defense. The question for me is, out of those nine teams, where do they rank on offense? Yeah. And outside of Notre Dame, a team that I also was very upfront about not wanting to put into the playoff discussion, I think Oregon's probably the second worst. I, I mean, and they have more upside, I'd say, than than Notre Dame does. I think they have more upside at the quarterback position. I think they certainly have better athletes at this point at both wide receiver and running back. But I just don't see the huge upside. And you have to play Ohio State in week two. Again, I... I'm going to assume that if anybody has to go to Ohio State, if you told me Alabama's going to Ohio State, I'm still going to assume that you're probably going to lose that game because most teams don't win at Ohio State. And so the question is, can they go perfect the rest of the year? I, I just don't know. And the other thing, too, is that we have moved to a place in college football where offense really matters. You have to be able to be dynamic. You have to win the explosive play battle. And I don't trust that Oregon could win that against any of these teams except for Notre Dame. I really like Joe Moorhead. And I, I really came to respect what he could do at Penn State. He got a head coaching job out of it. That didn't work out so well. I think maybe he'll still be a head coach down the line. Or he just might be one of these guys that is now going to be a lifelong offensive coordinator because the dude can dial it up. But maybe maybe he's not a head coach type. I don't know. I don't want to. I think there's a lot of people in this world who uh, might not be as successful and live their best lives in Starkville, Mississippi. Yes. I don't know that he was a great a great fit for that. Right. Um, Fordham, Penn State, Starkville, right, is is maybe not the right fit for him. But they have two former head coaches running their offense and defense now. And we are going to do next week in the ranking, we're going to rank the best quarterbacks of playoff contenders. And if Oregon gets in our discussion, which now hinges on my vote, and I'm going to milk it. This is Doug's time to shine. They they are going to be at the bottom of that discussion with Jack Cohn and Notre Dame, right? Like there's just going to be a world where you're talking about some Spencer Rattlers of the world. And then you're talking about some high profile young guys with upside at Bama and Clemson and Ohio state JT Daniels at Georgia is somebody you can believe in Texas A&M would fall into the young guy upside conversation. Brock Purdy is a guy who's been around and maybe has some limitations, but you know you can win with that guy. And then Oregon and Notre Dame would be like, well, their quarterbacks are much less dynamic. Can they make up for it enough in other ways? And we are going to have that discussion because I'm going to let them in. And this is why I'm putting Oregon in. And by the way, oh, they're killing me. Well, oh, they're killing me. I, I do. I do love we, we have established you as the 
argue yes guy off the top and I'm the argue no guy. And as it turns out, you are hardcore. And I'm like, everybody's in the pool. Everybody into the pool. Uh, because I'm letting them in because of the week two Ohio State game. Because what I don't want to do on this podcast is have a team in the discussion that I'm kind of like about. And then we don't find out if they're any good or not until week eight. And it's like, oh, my God, like they they're seven and oh, but I think they stink. You know what I mean? That is not fun to me. Oregon, we're going to find out. And either right if they beat Ohio State in week two, we're going to be like, holy crap, of course they're in. And if they lose, I'll kick up. I'll kick them out because once we get to the season, we're going to kick a team out every week. So I'm ready to kick them out, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt because they're going to have a chance to either prove it or not prove it right away. And if it's like, no, their quarterback play is not good enough, they're a year away, then we'll boot them. But Oregon, welcome to the college football playoff show discussion. You're angry. I like that you, you think we're soft. You think this podcast is soft. I don't like who we're soft against. I don't think that Oregon needs any help. I don't think Notre Dame needs any help, right? Like, I'm willing to have a team that I feel like can play their way into the discussion. I don't feel like Oregon's done that. I don't feel like Notre Dame's done that. I love it. God, I love the anger. I love it. That's enough for me to vote vote people in just to see you get mad about it. Uh, I'm not here to just disagree with you just for the heck of it. But if it accidentally happens, it's not so bad. <laughs> All right, Oregon is in with Ohio State, Oklahoma, Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Texas A&M, Iowa State, Notre Dame, and now Oregon is our ninth team. So we have nine individual defensive players to pick from, one from each team. We're going to rank them on that. And Shahan, I know last week when we talked about this, you said you were curious, will we even have the same guys for each team, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's going to be really interesting. And I'll actually get us started with my number eight. And this is, I think, number nine, number nine, because number nine, even though you didn't put Oregon in, you have to put Oregon in because it's the show rules. So we have now, well, now we have now, right now. I'm wondering if I, oh, I did forget to put somebody on my list, but I I do know where they're supposed to go. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We're good. We're good. All All right. Number nine, number nine. This is a player that I do think that actually you might have another guy for this school. I went with Tyke Smith from Georgia. Uh, He plays nickelback for them. Uh, He played at West Virginia last year, transferred in. I think he's going to be a really critical piece on their defense, playing kind of a slot corner role. Uh, Pro football focus last year, he said uh, they said he was targeted 38 times, allowed only 110 yards all season long, did not allow a single explosive pass play. Now, again, he's a he's a slot corner. There's only so much that obviously you expect him to do because he's a slot corner. Uh, I do think that this is interesting because we did have Georgia far and away in the top three defenses. And I have them as my number nine individual defender. That's partially because of how much they lost. And also it's just how much of a unit they are. And that's something that George, I think year to year tends to be is they tend to be 11 deep and yeah. 22 deep really at, at, on defense. It's not really about one guy. And so even though I think that George's defense is going to be super elite, I still think that they probably have the worst individual defender. No, I think that is a very, Yes, that's what you find when you go through Georgia, that it a guy doesn't jump out like does jump out at, at almost every other team. I will tell you, I had a different Georgia guy, and I had that Georgia guy eighth out of nine on my list. So I'll reveal that now. And I went with Jordan Davis, the defensive tackle. Mm-hmm. Dan Lanning, the yeah. defensive coordinator, said, like, you don't move that guy. The Georgia coaches said he might have played as high as 370 at times last year. They, they'd like him to be down more around 330. He's an athlete. He could have gone to the NFL. I was doing a lot of snap counts with some. There's a lot of defensive linemen and edge rushers on my list, probably on your list too. You know, a guy like like Jordan Davis doesn't play as many snaps as some of those guys. He's so big. But when he's in the game, he's impactful. He's a really good run defender. And, and George is always good against the run. And he's a key component of that because you, you cannot move him. And you see him in the interior of the line. He just he'll stand up the offensive lineman. And then when the play gets to him, he just uses his hands and throws the offensive lineman to the side and makes a play. But he's also a pass rusher. He'll collapse the pocket from the inside. So I think he's a rare guy. Not a lot of people like him. You know, I think he he can't go maybe 60 or 70 snaps a game every game like some of these other guys can. So that's why he's a little lower, lower on my list, because I don't think but I think individually in, in a moment. You can find some individual highlights of him where it's like, I don't know what you do with that guy. 
And there's there's maybe one or two other guys on this list, at least one that jumps out to me that's like, I don't know that there's anybody else in college football like this guy. So I had Jordan Davis eighth out of nine on my list. But I think your point that Georgia doesn't have someone quite at the top, 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 top tier right now, somebody might pop. But right now, I think is is one of the things we learned from this exercise. I will tell you who I had nine, though. And I in, in my group, I thought I had a very clear top three for me. I thought I had a fairly clear middle three. And then at least for me, I had kind of a bottom three. But also, even this guy who's ninth might be a different guy than you have for this team. I could see him being fourth. Maybe not even by the end of the year, maybe by October. And I went with Zach Harrison of Ohio State, who is a five-star defensive end, who's sort of the next guy in the in the litany of Ohio State defensive ends. They have Haskell Garrett at defensive tackle, who was an All-American last year, who might be the guy that you pick for Ohio State. But that Zach Harrison upside, Ohio State coaches have been talking about him all preseason. If he is some version of 80% of Chase Young, right? I mean, he's he grades really highly on pro football focus. At Ohio. He's been a good player for two years. Has he been great? PFF likes him more than, like, I think maybe eyeballs like him. But I think he has a, I think he could be a double-digit sack guy for Ohio State this year. He's got size. He's got speed. He's learned the, the ways of Larry Johnson. I still put him ninth, though, which is, again, this Ohio State defensive discussion they don't have a clear, they don't have a Chase Young this year. So Garrett might be the more obvious choice, but I think for Ohio State to be as good as they can be, I think probably by the end of the year, Zach Harrison needs to be their best defensive player. And I think he very well might be, but he's still, because he hasn't quite done it at the same level as these other guys so far, he's last on my list here. That's so interesting. So yeah, I went with Haskell Garrett and I, yeah, we are not on the same page whatsoever on this awesome. guy. So. Yeah, I have Haskell Garrett fourth on my list. So the big thing you you mentioned uh, you mentioned with uh, Jordan Davis of guys who you just can't replicate, and I think that Haskell Garrett is one of those guys. And the other thing too is that obviously last year Ohio State had a pretty strong defensive line. You lose a couple of those guys. I think that Haskell Garrett is going to be as important as any guy on this list because his interior play is going to be critical to freeing up some of those other guys. And so for me, Haskell Garrett's not going to be a guy who puts up huge numbers. I mean, I think he was only a four tackle for loss guy last year. Like he didn't put up big numbers, part of, partly because also he freed up other guys. Um, that doesn't matter as much to me. I think that uh, Pro Football Focus said he had 18 pressures, had an 89 pass rush grade, which is the best among power five interior defensive linemen. Like this is a dude who causes havoc and We've seen in the NFL with Aaron Don when you have a guy who can cause havoc in the middle of the line, which I think that Haskell Garrett can do better than any other interior defensive lineman in our discussion. Yeah, I, I had him up at fourth. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm he's a, like a unanimous kind of preseason All-American, first team All-American for for basically everybody. And like I didn't pick him and it's the team <laughs> I see the most. But I think he still will be that. Again, I think Zach Harrison has a chance to go past that. Uh, and because Ohio State has has usually has an end who does that usually has an end who's like a game wrecker. So uh, you're probably more right than I am on this. But Ohio State is another one of those where I think, you know, they have some guys, they have multiple different guys who might really pop this year, but they're they don't quite have a Haskell Garrett's close, but like they don't quite have a Kayvon Thibodeau. They don't quite have a top, top, top of the line guy. All right. So who do you have eighth then? In eighth, I have I actually have Brian Brisset from Clemson. So great, great, great freshman year. Tremendous freshman year. Uh, still, to me, a little more on the unproven side than some of these other guys. We saw the vision. Um, the other thing, too, is that, again, like with Georgia, I think that we are in a position with Brian Brisset where they just got a lot of guys. I mean, I, I almost went with Nolan Turner as safety, as, as the guy for as a representation. I eventually did go with Brisset because I think that it's really about their defensive line. But we talked about it on the uh, on the overall defense show. I mean, they have so many guys on this defensive line. And so Brisset's kind of allowed to just be a guy than having to be Kayvon Thibodeau and kind of the whole defense is built around him, right? Uh, 11 games last year, 23 tackles, six and a half tackles for loss, four sacks, two passes defended too. So he's somebody who gets off the line and uh, and really kind of gets his hands up in a good way and, and wreaks havoc in that kind of way as well. Just a very... 
tremendously versatile player, obviously the number one recruit coming out of high school as well. And he's lived up to it in every single way. But but still, I think when you are ranking him versus some of these other guys, he's still a little bit more unproven. No, I think that's right. And I had him seventh on my list. So for for the exact same reason, a, a lot of his stuff like you watch, you still watch if you go look at his high school highlights and, and camps and like he, the, the 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 raw athletic ability size speed flexibility is is stunning right i mean that that guy jumps off the page played like 36 snaps a game last year for clemson which is kind of a lot for a freshman but again like Kayvon thibodeau played 68 snaps a game last year so he's gonna right. see that increase in how much they rely on him i almost went with miles murphy i think that like they're almost a tandem it's hard to separate those two guys but there are people you know you'll find people who throw stuff out like oh he's gonna be the number one pick in the in the NFL draft in two years, right? So that's where he is. He he's just not there quite yet. Even like there's a there's some other second year guys that I have on my list who I just feel like have been maybe been asked to do more so far. But I think it's hard when we're talking about the very best defensive players for the very best teams. I think it's harder to put him any higher than where we have him. So I agree with everything you said, and he's seventh on my list. So again, I have Zach Harrison of Ohio State nine, Jordan Davis of Georgia eight. And Brian Brzee of Clemson, seven. You have Tyke Smith of Georgia, nine. Uh, Clemson, eight. Who's your seven, Shahan? Yeah, the seven on my list is Nick Benito from Oklahoma. So the one thing about Nick Benito that holds him down a little bit for me is that he's a one-trick pony. The thing that I think is a credit to him is that his one trick is pretty dang good. Yep. He gets after the, the quarterback in a big way. Uh, in 10 games last year, 32 tackles, 10 and a half tackles for loss, eight sacks, two passes defended. Um, I mean, just just a tremendous, tremendous pass rusher. He actually led all FBS players with a 93.6 pass rush grade as an edge rusher. 28 percent uh, pass rush win rate, 25 percent, point seven percent. Oh, my gosh. Too many numbers. Too many numbers. Pressure generated. Yep. Basically, when he got after the quarterback, he got after the quarterback. And again, he wasn't in much of a coverage role. He was kind of asked just to do one thing, but he did that one thing very well. The The guys that I have ahead of him, it's not because they're better pass rushers. I think he could be arguably one of the best pass rushers on this whole list. Uh, he just isn't as much of a factor in the run game. He's more of a third down guy, um, but he is very, very good at that one thing. He moves so well. He is so fluid. And this is interesting because you know this guy pretty well from being the Big 12. You have him seventh. I had him fourth. And I had, mm. I had a hard time with uh, Will Anderson from Alabama and Nick Benito from Oklahoma. Yeah. Similar in a lot of ways of, I just think, like very fluid sort of in-space pass rushers who can beat you with speed, who can beat you with power. I don't know that they have a ton of moves yet, right, compared to some other guys. But you can just see what could be there. And so that I had him at the top of my second tier. Clearly, to me, below the top three guys, but a, a little higher than you had him. But agreeing with everything you said, again, the best pass rush grade in the country for PFF, which which catches my eye that, again, what he does, he does very well and how much more might be there. And again, now to me, now you're get like that, you're getting game record category. But also, if you tell me that like three, three weeks into the season, everybody will agree that Zach Harrison's better than Nick Benito. I think that's entirely possible. And I'll be like, well, that was dumb. I had Harrison nine and Benito four, and that's that should be flipped. But I think Benito has flashed at his peaks have been higher than Harrison so far. So we're on the same page, just slightly different rankings there. That's your number seven. My number seven was Brzee. So I'll go to my number six because I'm very curious because you've talked about this guy a lot. You have a good handle on this guy. Mike Rose from Iowa State is my number six. Just like a really good linebacker. Not great in coverage, great tackler, great against the run. Wound up with a bunch of interceptions last year, kind of being like right place at the right time, which certainly like is not a, that's not a shot at somebody. It's like he he has a sense for defense, right? I think maybe just, you know, maybe a cut below some of these other guys and like, in the dominance factor, but like make plays, get to the ball, make tackles in space, just like a really good defender. But I, I had a hard time getting him any higher than sixth on my list. So that's interesting. I actually have Mike Rose third on okay. my list. 
And the reason for that is that there are only a select number of players on this list that I feel like can affect the game at all three levels. At the line, behind the line, in the box, and also downfield as well. And Mike Rose, you mentioned, he does not have the dominance factor. There are guys, especially the two guys who I have above him on my list, who are dominant, right? I mean, we keep repeating to Kayvon Thibodeau. I think that you can obviously tell that he's going to be very high on our list. Kayvon Thibodeau is dominant. He's winning every one-on-one battle. But I think that the thing that Mike Rose does, and it's the execution versus dominance sort of conversation, but the way that he impacts the game and the way that Iowa State's defense funnels to him is just, it's a unique thing to me. I mean, I, I think that there aren't many linebackers who are asked to do as many things as Mike Rose is asked to do. I mean, there's a reason that he was Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. There's a reason he's a consensus first-team All-American, right? This is not a guy who's, again, I keep coming back to this. This is not a guy who's good for Iowa State. This is a guy who's good, who's just straight up good. And so at linebacker, again, I, I don't think that there's many guys on this list who affect the game in as many ways as Mike Rose does. Again, you trade dominance for impact, but I think that I still hold that impact uh, in high regard. Okay, so then who do you have sixth on your list? Sixth on my list, I have DeMarvin Leal from Texas A&M. So, this is interesting. Yeah? <laughs> I have him higher, but you know him better. Why is yeah. he sixth? He, I, I don't want to go as far as saying that he's part of a unit at Texas A&M because he is the guy. He is 100% the guy. But he only kind of became the guy at the end of last year. I mean, Bobby Brown at defensive tackle was a big time player for them. He's not going to be playing off of Bobby Brown anymore. Um, now, Leal, I think, is is a great run defender. I mean, Texas A&M had a top five, I believe, run defense, and, and he plays the run very well. He moves very well. You see the pieces. It, it's the same sort of deal that that uh, you've mentioned. We're like, if by the end of the year, DeMarvin Leal is number two on this list. Nothing would surprise me, right? I think he probably could be a first-round NFL draft pick in 2022, but it's a track record thing. I know that I'm going to always keep coming back to it, but I think that the production hasn't been as big, and I also think that you, with some of the great pass rushers, with the Chase Youngs and stuff like that, you feel it every play, right? And and I don't think that you feel DeMarvin Leal every play to the same extent. You feel that defensive line unit, I think, and and it's you have to say, like, obviously his impact is also freeing up other guys as well. I mean, you know, I, I don't know exactly how good Jaden Peavy is. I don't know how good Bobby Brown was exactly because uh, DeMarvin Leal is that kind of player. But I don't see him and what he did last year as being a top, top three elite type guy. I, I think that it's right in the middle. Now, again, I say all that. He's a first-team All-American to me, right? I think that uh, that every defensive lineman, arguably, on the uh, on this list could be a first-team All-American, right? I mean, the fact that we're having to go and, and kind of make these, uh, these tiny gaps between players, I mean, that's just a testament to how good this list is. But I had him kind of a little bit more in the middle class. So I had him third on my list, and I will tell you, I had a discussion about, in my own head, about putting him second. Mm. Uh, he really seems to play with his hands really well. Now, I, yeah. I caught more... I was watching a lot, but I caught more highlights than down to down, down to down. I feel like there's a decent number of these other guys, and I would even throw Thibodeau in there. But I think Thibodeau and Benito and Anderson and Brzee and just a decent, even Harrison a little bit to some degree, more than often than not, win, getting around the edge, bend, power at times. But I just liked what Leal was doing technique-wise, in addition to being... Not a 255-pound guy like a lot of these guys we are that we're talking about. Being a 290-pound guy who right. can play inside, who can play outside, but who can get after the passer, can collapse a pocket, is really good against the run, which not all these edge rushers are. And I, and I felt like his peak of athleticism plus technique plus size to me was a step above. Not that I think you can find the 255 pound fast guy to get around the edge everywhere. But Leal was a little bit different to me. Just like Jordan Davis is a little bit different. I had Jordan Davis lower. I just, I, I fell into a rabbit hole with some of his clips and just really liked what he looks like at his best. And so I, I almost put him second, but you obviously have a better overall handle on him. But am I, is there, there is an upside here that is extreme if he does it consistently. Absolutely. It's the down to down consistency that I want to see. I think that's what makes 
a good pass rusher, somebody who does a good job from somebody who is Chase Young, right? Somebody who is who's Miles Garrett. And obviously, I mean, DeMarvin Leal went to Texas A&M because he wants to be Miles Garrett. And I think that you see you see the pieces of that starting to develop. But um, and, and the other thing, too, is that maybe I'm being unfair comparing him to the pass rushers. Maybe I need to compare him a little more to a Haskell Garrett because he does play a little more interior sometimes than uh, than some of these stand up pass rushers. Right. He doesn't play the same kind of position as Nick Benito. So maybe comparing those two, especially in terms of numbers, is unfair. Uh, he moves very well, though, especially when he when he's kind of uh, going and when he's rolling. And you mentioned he's really great with his hands and he's a very strong player who moves in a way that he probably shouldn't be able to move. Yeah, much better run grade from PFF than a couple of these other guys that we've talked about. I, I think we might have the same guy at number five, if I'm right here. So I messed up uh, because I, I miscounted on my list, remember. So Haskell Garrett is five for me. Okay. Haskell Garrett is five. So who's your four? Mine is Will Anderson from Alabama. He's my five. Yeah. So we're right in the same rage on Will Anderson, who I have a hard... I, could you flip... Now, again, he's... Some of these guys are linebackers or whatever. They're edge rushers. He's after the passer every down. Right. Could you flip a coin to some degree on Will Anderson and Nick Benito and try to figure out who's better because they're very similar? Yeah, no, I I definitely think so. I think that's... Again, Benito just as a stand-up pass rusher is just crazy off the edge. I mean, he he screams off the edge. And definitely that's what Will Anderson was asked to do. I think that I'm probably just a little more optimistic about what Will Anderson can do with sort of the rest of his game. I think that he's yep. a little bit more impactful as a run blocker, as a run defender, rather. Um, you know, that's why I did have him ahead on my list. I mean, this is a guy who had 52 tackles last year, right? I mean, this is as a true freshman, by the way, and and also forced a fumble and, and had eight quarterback hurries and got a lot of pressures on the quarterback and also got in the backfield a whole lot. So he's a little bit more versatile, I think, at this point than Nick Benito is. That's why I had him a little higher on my list. I'm curious to see how his role changes now, especially as you lose a guy like Christian Barmore at Alabama. Yep. Um, you know, if he does kind of move around a little more, because because again, this kid was a true freshman. This, this isn't what true freshmen are supposed to look like, man. This is not what I looked like when I was 18. <laughs> I was not doing things like this. But I, I think when you compare like the true freshmen and what they were asked to do last year and what they did, he's a cut above yeah. Brzee in terms of production from no freshman question. year. No and question. And so... You know, 6'4", 245, it was third in the SEC last year with seven sacks, freshman All-American, speed and power off the edge, active, active, active. Just And you can see, all right, if he adds a little more, a couple more things in his toolbox, this guy is going to be awesome. And, and, and to do that as a true freshman on a really good defense and played a ton of snaps, like was out there a lot, about 50 snaps a game as a true freshman for the mm. national champion. Now, again, surrounded by a lot of good guys. So it's one of those things, oh, well, he had a lot of good guys around him who helped him look good, and he's going to have a lot more on him this year. But that guy played a ton of important snaps at a high level in year one. So we're right in the same range on him. And by the way, uh, at Alabama, you know, we mentioned with Georgia, it's just like a wave of kind of very good guys, and we're not sure the dominant guy. Alabama's got waves, and there are dominant guys. Like, I... Yeah. I Will Anderson was obviously the pick. I don't think that was too hard to think about, but like Henry Toto was maybe the best linebacker in America last year. Josh Job is one of the best corners in America. Christopher Allen had more tackles for loss than, than Will Anderson did. Like it's not fair. It's, it's really just not fair. Yeah. Their linebacker group is bonkers at Alabama. Yeah. It's going to be nuts. All right. We're back. Doug, Shahan. So I think we have the same two guys at the top. Yes. I will be curious to see what order we have them in. Who do you have number two, Shahan? I have Kyle Hamilton from Notre Dame. Okay. I flip-flopped him. I have have Kayvon Thibodeau two, and I have Kyle Hamilton one. So let me talk about Hamilton first, since he's my one, then you talk about Thibodeau. I love playmaking safeties. This guy is a monster. It feels like he knows where the ball is going. He is a missile in run defense. He is around the ball and reading quarterbacks in pass defense. He has size. He has speed. Uh, maybe it's more almost as an NFL prospect. I, To me, an elite safety is what takes a defense from good to great. And that's not the death. Like you have to have, you have to have the basics. You have to have guys who can get after the passer and you have to have corners that can cover. But then when you add, and I'm not sure Notre Dame has that, but when you add a safety on top of that, it's it's the magic elixir. He scares me 
as a quarterback, he would scare me because he clearly hits the film room. He has great instincts. He roams everywhere. He's on the attack every single play, and he's 6'4", 219. And he's going to be, he might be the first, I think this is right, the last safety taken in the top 10 of the NFL draft was Jamal Adams in 2017. He'll probably be taken in the top 10 of the NFL draft because he he is a game changer, man. And I, I have a little bit of a read on Thibodeau that, again, when I dug in on him, obviously he's great, but I just felt like I don't see anybody else like Kyle Hamilton. And I can see other people even on this list who are, 85, 90% of what Thibodeau does. So that's why I put Hamilton number one. Yeah. No, and I totally get it. I mean, Kyle Hamilton, also a true sophomore last year. I mean, you are not supposed to learn defensive back this quickly. You can, I mean, what young players are supposed to look like who are great? You're supposed to look like Will Anderson. You're asked to do a specific thing and you rule at it. You're not supposed to be as versatile as a true freshman and a true sophomore as Kyle Hamilton was. And we talked a little bit about it on the Notre Dame show about... Marcus Freeman coming in and Marcus Freeman is going to have so much fun with Kyle Hamilton at safety. He's going to put him everywhere on the field. I wouldn't be surprised to see him screaming off the edge. I wouldn't be surprised to see him obviously in the field. I I think he's going to play everywhere. I I think he's going to be a big time player for them. Uh, I think that he was in the top 10 on Bruce Feldman's freaks list. Like this is, this is a real dude. (laughs) This is not nice for a player, right? This is this is a guy who, like you said, is going to be picked in probably the top 10 of the NFL draft. The reason that I went Thibodeau is he had a slow start to 2020. I think that that's fair to say. But the way that I've seen him take over games as a defensive end, it's been a while since I've seen a guy like that. I'm, I'm trying to think of the last one. I mean, Chase Young is the obvious answer in terms of a guy who could just take over a game. But that's kind of the level, right? That, that's how good Kayvon Thibodeau has been at his best. He was not at his best to start the 2020 season. I mean, they started the season in October, November. I don't really fault him too much for that. But like when he is going and what you saw at the end of the year, I mean, he is he's unblockable. There's nothing you can do. And it's going to be a lot of fun for me getting to see Kayvon Thibodeau potentially line up in multiple places playing against Ohio State, who has yeah. one of the best tackle combinations in America. So I and, and I do think when you have a game changer at defensive end, somebody who can stand up, somebody who can get down, somebody who can even move inside if he really needs to. It's it's just a trump card. There's a reason that the SEC ends up being, you know, the best conference in America. And it's because of their defensive line play. Kayvon Thibodeau stands ahead above even any of those guys, right? I mean, that's how special he is. And so I, I still remember back in 2019, it was that Oregon-Utah, uh, when he was a freshman, that Oregon-Utah Pac-12 championship game. And Kayvon Thibodeau is the reason that Utah did not play in the college football playoff that year. He is the singular reason that Utah did not get a shot at that because he dominated that offensive line. And, and it's been a long time since I remember somebody so consistently just wreaking havoc. He is... He never stops. To me, it's motor and speed is what yeah. jumps off. And and again, snap count. This was snap counts last year. And again, the Pac-12 played a truncated season. 52, 61, 72, 80, 69, 69, 70. He doesn't come off the field. He yeah. played 20 or 30 more snaps per game on average than a lot of these other defensive linemen we're talking about. And for him to play at the effort level yeah. and with the speed that he plays every snap when he doesn't leave the field is mind-blowing. And, and I'll point to his bend, too. I mean, he is so flexible for somebody who is gigantic, right? I mean, he, you just watch the game. I mean, I especially remember that first year, like, he was still figuring out the technique side of things, and it just did not matter. He was just, like, running at guys, and <laughs> it just had nothing for him. And so you saw him at the end of 2020 develop a little bit more to where, yeah, again, he's getting lower. He's getting, you know, using his hands a little better. That's probably the last piece is using his hands at an elite level, like we talked about with uh, DeMarvin Leal, but... If so, so there are going to be two quarterbacks drafted in this upcoming draft uh, in the top two, Sam Howell and Spencer Rattler in some order. And I'd be pretty surprised if he's not third. Yeah, no, best non quarter first non quarterback taken is quite a badge of honor for whoever that is. Yeah, that was what also jumped out to me. And I almost put Leal ahead of Thibodeau because of that, because I thought the hand fighting yeah. and the ability that the stuff in the toolbox for Leal looks to me a step above Thibodeau at this point. Definitely. He, he seems to be kind of all bend and power, right? He's going to go through you. He's going to go around you. And I will be curious again, as you said, that's a great test for Ohio state in week two. And as Ohio state's moving some, some guys around that actually right now, Thayer Munford might be 
the best returning tackle in college football. He might not play tackle for Ohio State this year. He he might oh be boy. moving inside the guard. Oh boy. And they might be playing a a really raw third year guy at right tackle who's never started before. It was like a recruit in the thousands, but it is is like a six foot ten guy who is a basketball player and has crazy natural talent. They're trying to find their best five. I think he needs more to beat Ohio state's best guys. Cause I don't like when you're playing great tackles, you can't just bull rush him on one snap and try to get around him with speed. The next you've got to have another move. And I didn't see that a ton. And I just, it just jumped off the, the, the highlights to me. When you look at Leal and he's doing stuff. I mean, he's got, he's got moves. He's moving guys outside and then going inside. And Thibodeau doesn't quite have that to me, but I respect the motor for that kind of athlete. He has like the motor of a walk-on. He <laughs> yeah. never, stops he never stops and he is he's a he's a 110 percent effort guy 70 snaps a game with an unbelievable package of speed and power it is i want that guy on my team but i i in digging in on him i almost did expect a little more when you're talking about oh this is the best this is the best pass because to me he's not chase young yeah and that's not it i mean okay well chase young might be the best pass rusher college football seen in the past 10 years but I don't see that. I don't see the package of moves that you see or Miles Garrett, right? When you see with a guy who's at the top, 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 top of his game, I think there's still a little more there for him. And and one thing I will say is that with DeMarvin Leal, he's going every week against, you know, I, mean, I don't want to talk it up too much, but SEC offensive lines. Whereas, yep. you know, maybe Kayvon Thibodeau just hasn't had to develop that because he's able to win without it, right? So I'll be curious to see. Again, I, I think that Ohio State game is going to be really interesting because it will sort of reveal, can he win when he can't just rely on bull rushes, right? Yes. Can he win when he can't just bend around guys, when he when he's just, you know, kind of floating through guys, basically, because he's just so quick. It's going to be interesting, for sure. I, I mean, I certainly would agree that that he does not have the uh, the bag of tricks that, that DeMarvin Leal has, but I think that also DeMarvin Leal doesn't have the physical gifts that Kayvon yes. Thibodeau has. All right, final list. My number one, Kyle Hamilton of Notre Dame, Kayvon Thibodeau of Oregon, DeMarvin Leal of Texas A&M, Nick Benito of Oklahoma, Will Anderson of Alabama, Mike Rose of Iowa State, Brian Brzee of Clemson, Jordan Davis of Georgia, and Zach Harrison of Ohio State. For Shahan, it was Thibodeau on top from Oregon, then Hamilton of Notre Dame, Mike Rose of Iowa State, Will Anderson of Alabama, Haskell Garrett from Ohio State, DeMarvin Leal of Texas A&M, Nick Benito of Oklahoma, Brian Brzee of Clemson, and Tyke Smith from Georgia. So only two schools Georgia and Ohio State, Shahan, where we differed on the guy that we picked in the same range. But I and I do think there's a line to me. I I feel like Hamilton and Thibodeau can definitely win a big time game, not by themselves, but be like, that's the reason a team won a game. And and I just maybe Leal. I don't know if the other guys have the are as well rounded to be able to dominate like a playoff game from you know, for 70 snaps. They'll make highlight plays here and there. But I do think, to me, there was a little bit of a cut, Hamilton, Thibodeau, and Leal. Maybe your cut would be Thibodeau, Hamilton, right? That when you talk about, like, guys who absolutely might, like, carry a team in a major game. Yeah, and I do want to throw a shout-out to uh, two guys who might be in the playoff conversation before long who have tremendous names. Sauce Gardner from Cincinnati and Storm Duck from North Carolina. Uh, Just, I, I don't know... I know that Sauce Gardner's actual name is Ahmad. I don't really know about Storm Duck, but uh, I'd be remi- remiss if I didn't mention them. Well, we'll uh, yeah, we, we'll be discussing their team shortly. They just missed out, but that will they'll get their due. They'll get their due. We talk about the Tar Heels and the uh, Cincinnati Bearcats in coming weeks here on the College Football Playoff Show. We like to wrap it up with a little personal question and answer. I think, Shahan, it's your week to come up with something you'd like to ask me and then reveal about yourself. Yes. So... Let's take Ohio State Stadium out of it. And for me, I'll take uh, I'll take my alma mater stadium out of it. What is the best stadium that you've been to in college football slash environments? You know, I I think uh, both those are tied. Yeah, so I've been lucky to get a peek at, you know, been at Texas, been at USC, at Washington, at Oklahoma, at Miami, at Virginia Tech. Some of these non-conference games that Ohio State has played in. I have very little exposure in the SEC. I have not been to Death Valley. I've not been to Alabama. I, I went. I was outside Alabama. I, I went to the what Rammer Jammer place. The little got a hot dog uh, in the shadow of the stadium. But I, I probably would say for me, um, since it is Big Ten heavy, probably 
Madison, Wisconsin, Camp Randall Stadium, it shakes. I mean, I don't know. I guess that's a plus. It's something about, you know, a lack of structural integrity is somehow a plus for you. But everybody talks about that. Between the third and fourth quarter, they do the jump around in the stands and the press box shakes. And so it's like, well, this this might be the end of me. But it is a uh, it's a tremendous atmosphere. Uh, I think Iowa's kind of close to that. Penn State's much bigger, but is kind of in that range. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things. And and again, I usually see them in the context of when Ohio State is there. Like when you're on the road and like a good team is up for Ohio State. In 2010, Ohio State was number one, had just ascended to number one, and Wisconsin returned the opening kickoff for a touchdown and then beat Ohio State. That place was, I, I can't believe the press box didn't fall off the side of the stadium that night. So that kind of atmosphere where, where the place moves. I, I I can't get past that. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say I, I am obviously from that perspective jealous, right? Because every game Ohio State plays is like the biggest game of the year. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, for me, when I was back at covering my alma mater, Baylor, it's like, oh, cool. Baylor's coming to town. They were good. But like, you know, they're not they're not showing out for that. But yeah. I'd say for me, I'd say for me, the answer is Kyle Field at Texas A&M. Same deal. I haven't been to a lot of the SEC stadiums. I've been to a lot of the Big Ten stadiums. Most of the ones that I've been to are kind of around Texoma, all that sort of area, right? But Kyle Field to me is so interesting because it's a big stadium. It's it's 100,000. It's really newly renovated. So, like, it still feels very new. Whereas, you know, I mean, like, Daryl K. Royal over at Texas, like, it feels old. Right. Like it feels concrete. It feels like, you know, historic is something that to me sometimes means that people just get complacent. And with Kyle Field, it's historic, but they also really updated it in a nice way. They also actually have a, a shaking press box. It used to shake a lot more. And then they're like, this is not OK, because a does this thing where people like put their arms around each other and sway side to side. And the idea is that supposed to be that they're sawing off Texas's horns, basically, which, you know, we don't have to get into the all the AM stuff, trust me. But uh, but at the same time, you know, it's really cool to kind of have because because it is like swaying side to side, it's not even jumping and it still moves the whole stadium, which is pretty cool. And so uh, the combination of being really nice uh, and, and also a great atmosphere, Kyle Field was that for me. All right, that's a little peek into Shahan and Doug. We appreciate you guys joining us on the playoff show. We do it twice a week, the Q&A show in our press conference format, and then every week the main pod where we're talking about a team and then ranking everybody by a certain thing. Next week, we will dig in to North Carolina and the quarterbacks. Sign up for the text at 817-442-6789. Drop a review at Apple Podcasts if you'd be so kind. For Shahan J. Haraja, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was the College Football Playoff Show. <laughs>